Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thanheiser, and today I'm talking with Courtney Kessler. We will be discussing the article, If the World Were a Village, Learning Mathematics While Learning About the World, published in the June 2021 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons they shared in the article, their successes and challenges, and how the lessons relate to their work. The reason I emphasize they so much is because I'm actually part of they, because Courtney and I co-authored this article. So this is going to be a interesting interview question, answering question. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ava. All right. So let's figure out how to do this by talking about our own article. So let's just start with a brief summary of the article, including the results. Do you want to get started, Courtney? Yeah, I can start. Well, so we decided to write an article about some work that we've been collaborating on for a while. It focuses on a lesson that we both taught in various kinds around the book and some websites called If the World Were a Village where it takes the world's population and shrinks it down to a village of 100 people. And Ava, you detail your work in content courses, and I detail my work in methods courses a little bit, but it's really about your work in the content courses. We've also done it in professional development contexts and in little kids' classrooms. Yeah, so... I think that's good for a summary and we'll get into details later, but I did want to point out that I learned about this task from you initially, and I think initially you used it with children, right? That's mm-hmm. how it all started. And then... Actually, I learned about it from my friend and colleague, Ryan Flessner, and we actually did it in our math, math, math methods courses, but I have done it as much with little kids as I have with teachers. Okay. So, and there's like a whole community now that does this task. So you and I have also co-authored three levels of this task for early elementary, elementary, and middle school levels in the book series that's coming out next summer, which we'll reference in the show notes with Mm -hmm. co-authors who've also done work on this task. Yeah. So part of the reason why we wanted to write this paper was to detail some of the back and forth work that we've done. It really, you started writing this paper. And then I think if I remember correctly, you started writing it and then you asked me to co-author. But we wanted to detail a bit about this back and forth kind of push and pull that we have engaged in to talk about this lesson and how it's kind of developed over the years. So, which I think was kind of a cool idea to do. Yeah. So I remember like, I learned from you and then I was like, I'll do it. And then I did it. And then I came back and said, here's what I did. And you said, oh, what about this? And then I'm like, all right, I'll try that. And it kind of went just back and forth. And we did, one of the main goals of this lesson is critical literacy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, well, let's get into that a little bit later. Let's tackle the question first of who should Mm -hmm. read this article. And if you want, I can go first on this one. So I think the way this article is written, it's for teacher educators to implement the task in content as well as methods courses. One of the beauty of this task is that 
I always say you can do like any math concept with it because it's so open, but it can also really focus on one or two specific math contexts. So if you look at the lessons we published, or there's this one lesson we wrote up in this article, this really focused on fractions, decimals, percents, and understanding like the notion that when we shrink the world down to 100, that each one person represents so many people in the real world and how that changes when we change the size of the village and those kinds of things. I do think, and K-12 teachers could read it and adapt it as well, but I think our primary audience was teacher educators. Mm-hmm. Right, I agree. When I look at it, what I like about the task is there are times when I have taught it and I have focused more on the critical literacy piece within a math methods context or within a PD or or even an elementary school classroom context. And that's why I like talking to you because sometimes when we talk, you're really focused on the mathematics piece while also thinking about the criticalness of the mathematics piece. This is actually excellent because you led us into the next question, which is what is the important problem or problem of practice or issue that your article addresses? And I think we're trying to bring in the critical literacy into all of math at different levels. So do you want to share a little bit of what critical literacy is and why it is important in the math classroom? Well, For me, it's something that I started learning about critical literacy when I was a school teacher and a math coach. There were a group of teachers working with Vivian Vasquez, who's a scholar at American University who does critical literacy work. And she was working with classroom teachers around critical literacy. And I was, so at that time, I was a math coach. And I was kind of on the outside of the circle because I was wondering like, well, what are they doing in English language arts related to critical literacy? And how might that be related to my work as a math coach? So I would every once in a while attend their meetings, but I still felt kind of on the outside. So I started wondering what, how I might bring that work in. And so to me, critical literacy is this idea that when we're viewing the world, we bring our own experiences and our own lenses to viewing the world. And it goes along with the work that I do with this. I'm getting kind of jumbled up because it's such a big idea. And in some ways, it's really hard to kind of, and this is part of what we write about in the paper that we, to do this work, we also kind of wanted or needed kind of a pithy kind of definition for it. So for me, it's this idea that everything is political and everything is non-neutral. So for me, critical literacy is this way to view the world and to think about who's writing the text that we're viewing. And text can be very broad. So do you want to take over? Because I feel like I'm kind of stumbling here. So yeah, I think that what we did is, I remember us talking, this was one of our back and forth, where I was like, I need a definition of critical literacy for my students, because I want them to use critical literacy while analyzing. And I couldn't find, like, usually when I need something like this, I go to, you know, the NCATM practitioner journals or something, try to find a concise article that they can read, and then they have it. And I couldn't find anything. And so what we did is we found some definition on, like, in a 
I think it was some kind of a dictionary. And then you and I adapted it to work for us. And the idea was, I think we narrowed it down to three questions. Who is in the stories and something else. But like, if we think about if the world were a village and we shrink down the 100 people, uh, the world population to 100 people. When I do this in my class, we always open up the world clock, which gives you a current, like how many people are in the world. And then we say, so now if we shrink that down to 100, how much does each person represent? And then I, we have, I think both of us have our students predict a certain things like, in teaching in the United States, I usually ask my students, how many of these 100 people do you think would live in the United States? Mm-hmm. And they always overpredict that because it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of figure out how many people are where. But to get to the critical literacy, in most resources that we saw, the, either the book or the video, they, the 100 people are broken down into men and women, right? Like mm-hmm. it's usually 50-50. And one of the things that we want our students to ask is like, why just these two categories? Why is there no right. more categories? Who is mm-hmm. not represented here within this binary? And similar for any of the other categories. Do you want to mm-hmm. jump back in? So looking at the text and thinking about how we can start unpacking or uncovering different biases, whether intentional or unintentional. So another category we look at in the book or on websites when looking at different characteristics of the village or the world is languages. And so students will look at the top, you know, the most spoken languages in our world or in the village. And then they start wondering questions like, you know, why are these, if these are the languages that are most spoken, thinking about the kinds of languages that are offered at their high schools or at their university institution. And then thinking about if these are how the data are presented, what about bilingual people or multilingual people? So even just those those initial kinds of questions start bringing up how data are presented and thinking about that no data are actually neutral, that people make decisions about data presentation and data representation. And then it goes beyond that when we ask students to represent the data using different kinds of conventional or unconventional representations, asking them to think about, okay, so, you know, some groups made pie charts, some groups made bar charts. How do those, how do those different representations communicate the the same exact data differently? And so having those kind of conversations bring this idea up that representations matter, that they're not neutral. And so I think those kinds of ideas are kind of the the beginning of this idea of critical literacy. So I remember one of the points you always make is that if we say represent either religions or languages or like in my class, I have my students select the book. It has like one topic per page and the websites have information. And so I have my students pick one topic they're interested in and then represent it in with like different ways. And the point, Courtney, that you always made is if we have the pie chart, it like represents the whole at the same time as the parts versus if we have a bar graph, it's much harder to see the whole, but it is a little bit easier to compare the pieces, right? So it's a question of what is it that we want to do? And just to kind of round out what the paper is about. So in my class, this is a two day lesson where on the first day, we 
throughout the class, we distribute the characteristics. Each group makes a poster with different representations and then a summary sentence. And then we, we learn about the world by looking through all the different posters. And then on the second day, since I live in Portland, we kind of say, okay, what if Portland was a village and shrink it down and then compare. And this is where some questions come up where it's like, for example, languages looks very, very different, right? In the world versus in Portland. But then some things like my students are always because my students are always surprised because Portland has a very high rate of homelessness. But then if you compare with the world and they go like, oh, wait, homeless is different from without shelter. Yeah. And just getting into uh, into the categories of what does this mean, where, and those kinds of things is really interesting. And they're not just learning about the world, but they're also learning about their own community. Mm -hmm. And I know, Courtney, you've done it like where the school is a village, right? Yeah. So early on when I started developing this lesson, I did it in a classroom with second and third graders. And they were really interested to look at their school data and their school district data. And it was such a phenomenal experience in part because they got very passionate about the way the labels that the school district used. So they really became interested in why the school district would, for example, use Black and not African-American. So we had lots of conversations around, you know, different labels for racial and ethnic groups. So we talked about Latino and Hispanic and Mexican and why, you know, why a kid might say, I'm Mexican. Why does that not show up on this graph? We also talked about... I might have alluded to this example earlier, but we talked about how the school that I was teaching in had a Spanish bilingual resource teacher. I think that's what the title of the teacher's position was, but there was not a Chinese bilingual resource teacher, even though there were almost as many Chinese speaking kids and families in that school as Spanish speaking. And so the kids, second and third graders were asking these very critical kinds of questions based on the data that they were seeing. And so it was a very, very powerful experience for them to take the, if the world were a village, ask for these data that were related to their school and school district community and start asking really powerful questions and starting to write, you know, letters to their principal and to their school school board to say, why is this not happening? Why don't we have a Chinese resource teacher? Why don't we have, why aren't there other categories to include people like me? So, but it was also hard for me. So I was a guest teacher. I was teaching every day in a cooperating teacher's classroom. It was during my graduate work. And so it was, it was also hard for me to say, you are included in this data. Your parents and family members had to, you know, check a box when you were enrolled in kindergarten. And it's unfair that they had to do that. But it was just a very, there was just a lot of tension there to have to say, this is the system that we have to participate in. But, and it's unfair. So what can we do about it? So I think this is a really nice description of the critical literacy aspect of the task. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to add a little bit of the math piece, because as soon as you compare whether it's the world and your hometown or it's the world and your school or even your hometown and your school, whatever two comparisons you want to make, you can get into fairly high-level mathematics. Like we did fraction comparisons, right? Or decimal comparisons when we did that to 
just kind of understand how many times more or less something occurs in one context versus the other. And then for people who are interested to take the math even at a higher level, the very end of the book looks historically about how many people, if the village was 100 people today, how many people would have been in the village 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1000 years ago, and it goes back. And so one of the activities we've done is predicting what the village would look like in the following years, which gets you into, you know, beyond linear functions modeling. So what I love about this task too, is that you can really dig into both, right? Mm -hmm. Into the critical literacy, but you can also dig into really deep mathematics and back and forth. And you can show how you need that mathematics to actually make sense. So let me jump into the next question. How does this article build on existing work in the field? Do you want to take a first stab or shall I? Either way. So to me, I think this task really builds on the Flint water task that is also an MTE a few years ago that was a, a or is a math modeling task. And I think it adds to the different kinds of math modeling tasks that we can use in mathematics education. I have done multiple podcasts with math modeling tasks where there was no context at all. And so I think just this idea of what do we think when we think about math modeling and do we start with a context, like I think, and then mathematize it, or do we start with a math idea and then contextualize it? Those are the things that kind of swirl around in my head when I think about this. What comes to mind for you, Courtney? I recently went to one of my friend's talks. She has a new book out with her colleague, Noreen. Her name is Katie Swawa, and she has a new book out with Noreen Rodriguez called Social Studies for a Better World. And I think about like in elementary school, as a former elementary school teacher, my work was not, you know, teach language arts, teach math, teach social studies. It was so much more integrated. I did work at a very unique school in that we were really pushed to think very interdisciplinary. And, and I do know that there are, there are people who think in very, you know, black kind of ways, but I just like, I think about the potential to really connect to critical literacy work. Right. And like, there are people doing critical literacy work in math, but not a lot. I just see the potential and the need to do more of this work in elementary, in elementary spaces and in middle school and high school spaces. But when I went, I bring up Katie and Noreen's work because when I went to their talk showing their new book, I was like, this is exactly the kind of work that math educators are doing when we're talking about teaching math for social justice, but not, no, it doesn't seem like math teacher educators are talking to social studies teacher educators in systemic ways, right? Like we might talk to people in faculty meetings, but we're not going to each other's conferences. We're not talking about to each other in really systemic ways about our scholarly work. And so I just thought about the need to really think about what can, you know, literacy folks tell us and inform us about our work and what can we tell them? How, how can we use social studies scholars work to inform our work? And so I just really see you know, how we can bring in this critical literacy work to really push kind of the social justice work that's already there and all this momentum that's there to push it forward. 
And just to kind of self-promote a little bit, you and I co-authored a paper with a bunch of other people about critical literacy in math education, a book chapter, right? That should mm -hmm. be coming out at some point. So mm -hmm. we'll link that to this podcast when it comes out. Sure. So the next question is, tell us a little bit more about the innovation. I think we already talked quite a bit about that, but is there anything else you want to share about that or how it addresses a problem of practice? I think maybe you also mentioned this, but what I like about this task is really, really being able to take kind of this seed of an idea that, you know, thinking about the world's population, this really, really huge number and taking it down to a village of 100 people and then being able to take these different angles to it, right? Like we can take the critical view of, you know, what the data mean and what, how we can kind of unpack the messages in the data, or we can think about data representation, or we can take, think about percentages and fractions and the, think about the equivalencies there. I just think there's so many different ways to come at the lesson and to push it forward. And that's why I think the, the real power of this lesson. And in terms of math teacher education, I think future teachers and practicing teachers really need to be able to think innovatively about tasks like that, because when they're in front of students, being able to push or pull a task, I think is a really important skill. Yes. My next question is, what were the research questions that we asked? And I don't know if you have the paper open. I just opened it. The question was how to integrate social justice issues in the math content courses that allow pers pr prospective teachers to learn math through the context, to see math as relevant to the real world, and to un uncover and address their understandings that do not align with the world. That's a mouthful. <laughs> so it says, what were the questions and what evidence did we provide? So can we take a, can you like give me the first piece of that again? Yeah. Well, I, and there's something that I don't think we've actually talked about that you do. That's something that's really embedded in your work that I think might be part of this question too is the tension of integrating social justice into math content courses while staying true to social justice content and mathematics content. So do you want to talk yeah. about that? So I'll, I'll turn the question on to you. Sure. To me also, I don't know if that came out of the questions, but it might not be just this task, but to me, one of the main goals of my content courses, and remember I teach content courses before teachers get into the teacher education program. So these are prerequisites. They are not with kids yet. And often they come in thinking math is this like abstract set of rules that somebody made up and they just have to kind of master. They don't really want to teach math often. And so one of my goals in my courses is I want my students to understand that you can make sense of math and shift their image of what math is. And I think we open and close the paper with asking them, you know, what do you think math is? Or what do you, you used to think math is? And what do you think math is now? And same mm -hmm. for math teaching. And so their views really shift from this abstract notion of rules I have to remember and teach to it's a tool that I can use to make sense of the world which is how, you know, I would interpret what math is. 
That's one of the evidences. That's not one of the particularly smaller questions that we asked, but that's like the larger evidence that we're presenting is this notion of how did their view of math shift, but also how did their understanding of the world shift? And I think that's what you alluded to. It's like to do both, right? Not just the math and not just the social justice, but both in combination. And so, as I said earlier, I think every single one of my students overestimated how many of the 100 people would come from the United States. Mm -hmm. And then when they dug into the data, they realigned their view of where, how people are distributed around the world. And so they're learning about that while they're also learning about data representation and data at like fractions, decimals, percents. And so they're learning about the math in a context that they're interested in and that makes sense. And to me, those are the pieces that are really important. Mm -hmm. Did you want to? Yeah, I just, I wonder how many methods faculty think very similarly. Like I feel, I mean, obviously, perspective teachers aren't going to have, many perspective teachers aren't going to have huge shifts in 15 weeks or nine weeks, right? Some will, right? I had a huge shift in my undergrad when I had an amazing faculty member. Something went off and I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what I like... Well, I also had an interesting experience in undergrad, but I thought like all the math that I knew was not the kind of math that I needed to be a good math teacher, yeah. right? Like, and so I had that aha moment that I needed to re kind of relearn the kind of math that I needed. But so I just like, cause I, fe- I have always felt like the work of what I do in methods is a lot of content still. Yes. Same when I taught methods. Uh, yeah. I don't feel like, I don't feel the difference is that big between how we teach methods and how we teach content. Potentially, there's a little bit less emphasis on lesson planning in content mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, more prescriptive, you have to cover these math ideas. Mm-hmm. So I think it's different in that way, but I don't know that we can pull apart like, what is the math and how do we communicate with math? So I agree. I think that like, that's why I think you and I collaborate and why we publish this together because it works for both settings. And often people enter methods courses not having content experience that shifted their view of math. Yeah. And so then, then that is, you still have to do that, right? I do. Well, they know something. They, they have some shift. It's just not all the, you know. I do think that with focusing your course, whether it's content or methods, on making sense of mathematics through understanding issues about our world will have an impact. Mm-hmm. Like if that's how you teach that and students haven't seen that before, that will shift the way how they think Absolutely. about math. And you know, like if you're not really sure how to do that, luckily there's a set of books coming out this summer that will be a good starting point for people that have a bunch of lessons in them. Mm-hmm. And we we are happy to share the various lessons if people want to email us about the, if the world were a village. So we're going to get everybody teaching this task. So my next question is about challenges 
what challenges did we encounter when we developed this innovation? I know one of the challenges that I also learned from you was how do you avoid when you have people make predictions about the world, how do you avoid them feeling bad if their predictions weren't accurate? Mm. And I think that's a problem we have in math in general. How do you avoid feeling bad when you have an answer that's not the one that or one of the ones that people were looking for. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, it can't feel like a gotcha when you reveal the answer. I try to be really transparent when I, you know, had misconceptions. There's always, when we talk about the world's most populated countries, we talk a lot about those countries, the six most populated countries or the five most populated countries. Like I tell them about my knowledge about those countries. And one of them is Indonesia. And I say that, you know, I've been doing this lesson for quite a few years now. And I, you know, previously knew very, very little about Indonesia. And it's bizarre to me that I went through life not knowing anything or little to know nothing about Indonesia when it's one of the largest countries in our entire world. And I talk about when I did it in a classroom here in Athens, and there were, there were kids from Indonesia and how, how exciting it was for me, how exciting it was for the children, how it really enhanced the lesson. And, you know, I say, I'm sure there's people in here that know nothing about Indonesia, and then everybody raises their hand. And so it's, it's more like, you know, I was there too. And I only know about Indonesia because I have made an effort to learn about it, right? And so we talk about other countries and we look at, you know, we look at a bigger list of, you know, the 20 most populated countries. And we think about like, why don't we know about where our world comes from or, you know, where the most populated, where the most people come from. And so just sharing those stories, I think helps that, you know, I I don't know everything. I agree. And then I think another task that I got from you is asking the students how many continents there are. And there are actually three different answers to that, right? Some countries teach five, some countries teach six, and some countries teach seven. And that one I usually share with my students that it blows my mind having grown up in Europe that I learned that Europe was a continent where there is no visible reason for Europe to be a continent other than socially constructed, right? There's no like natural, like it's its own landmass or whatever. And I actually remember being confused as a child a lot about, so Europe stops in Turkey, right? And then there's Turkey, there's Israel, there's all those countries there. What continent are, are they Asia? Because that's the other side, right? So, and we, we refer to them as the Middle East, but we don't say that's a continent. And so technically, are they Asia? And how does it make sense? And so I remember asking myself all these questions. What I don't remember asking myself is, should Europe be a continent? That was just a given, right? Because that's what I was taught. Yeah. And that's a prime critical literacy example, right? Absolutely. It's like, why do we just believe this? And so I think we have the pictures potentially in the task, if not a link about, you know, like there's an argument for five or six or seven. So you're not wrong when you say one of them, right? It's just a matter of 
whose interpretation are you answering to? Yeah, that's such a nice, neat little example of a critical literacy task that can explode, right? Because kids would be and undergraduates and, you know, teachers can be really interested in the research behind that, right? That it's not, or that they could do some research on their own to say, you know, there's not one definitive answer, right? Somebody with power gets to decide who learns what, and that there isn't one, you know, there's not a book that says there's seven continents, right? That gets to be the sole arbiter. So I have to say to me, like every time I implement this task, I feel like I'm learning something new about the world. So this continents piece wasn't part of the task when I, when you and I started working on it, we've made Uh it part of the task recently because of some conversation, right? And that's another one of those back and forth. Yes. But to me, this is also a very clean, like you said, example of, arbitrariness. And and this when you grow up as a child, you just believe. And so if we don't teach critical literacy, then it makes sense that our kids wouldn't know how to question the things they see mm-hmm. in the newspapers and in other places. Right. Okay. Last question before I ask about promotion, though we already promoted throughout. What new contributions to our field does our article make? How does it inform or influence teacher education? How do you see people using it? And let's start there. Well, I feel like I've talked a lot about critical literacy, but I do hope that, I mean, we know in teacher education, if we want students to think about equity and justice and have a critical progressive frame, that it has to be a coherent thread throughout courses, right? Like it can't just be in one course. It has to be a coherent thread. And so I think that if we work with colleagues across disciplines, across courses, that this critical literacy idea can be something that we do across courses and across lessons, right? Like a lesson isn't just a critical literacy lesson. It's a it's a frame that people can use to look at all lessons in their course and all readings, right? So I think to me, that's a really powerful view that this article brings. So if I understood what you said, it's like an example of how to use critical literacy in a lesson that then you could potentially use across various lessons. Mm -hmm. I think so. I also think that the lesson, and we have a lesson plan with the lesson in the article. I also think that this is an amazing beginner's lesson. If you mm-hmm. have never done something like this, you know, as we said, you can tackle different math pieces that we have one in this article, but you could see if there's something else you want to do. Decimals, percents, graphing, all of these come out. And it's just, if you've never done something, this is a lesson you could do. It's going to be well received by the students. The students always love learning about the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it could give you an idea of how that plays out. So I think in that sense, it's also a nice, nice lesson. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it, definitely. You can take it as it is, one lesson. And then I really appreciate how you always take it back to the local context, right? Like looking at Portland data, looking at community data. And I think that that's really something that students would be really interested in thinking about. And I know little, I mean, I've done it with little kids. I don't do it as much in under my undergraduate work, often because it serves the purpose as kind of an entree into critical literacy. 
And so I just, I haven't done it as much, but I really appreciate that you, you do it in different ways, I think, to bring out the mathematics and to think about different ways to doing it. But then that really grounds it in student experiences, which I really appreciate. And the other thing that we haven't talked about yet, but that is a big part of what I'm doing is connecting across different representations. So I always have my students use Unifix cubes and they can like use different colors to represent the different things. Then you can see how if you use different colors for say different religions or languages or something, you could build a bar graph out of the Unifix cubes. Then you can have a bar graph with the different colors, then you can have a pie chart where you use the same colors. So you can really like see the connections, you can have the table. So we're also learning about how to connect across representations, physical, written graphs with color. And I usually do this task very early in the term because it offers a lot of how to do these kinds of things. And so I think when the pictures in the article, you'll see that there's some Unifix tape to the Unifix cubes taped to the whiteboard, which then we reconstructed those into like the 100s chart to really connect how, how does it look in the 100s chart? And so to me, that's another piece that I think, like you mentioned earlier, Courtney, this interconnectedness of ideas, you can do really well with this task. Mm -hmm. Closing thoughts. I have just really appreciated how we have used this task as a way to go back and forth. To me, it feels like kind of practitioner inquiry in practice, right? Like we've done this task, we've talked back and forth, we revise it, we improve it, we go back and forth. Like it's just a really nice living example of that work in practice. And I've just really appreciated working with so you. So work, work with somebody. And if you have questions, email Courtney. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So I want to shift topics before I close us out because something happened when we published this article that I think we wanted to tackle really briefly. So do you want to talk about it? Sure. Talk about it. Sure. Yeah. So after we submitted the article, we you know went through the process. We got our page proofs back. We you know checked those off. We submitted those, and then when we saw the article published we realized that they changed my pronouns. So that was really disappointing. And so it was just disappointing to see that the journal decided to do that. Yeah. And the reason we wanted to bring this out is not in particular to to shame MTE, but this idea of not respecting who the authors are, even we, we do not think this happened intentionally. We do that's not what we're saying. What we're thinking is some, somebody fixed this in quotation marks and didn't pay attention. But I think the impact that that had on just not respecting a person's identity was huge. And I think we wanted to bring this out in this podcast just as a message to everybody, like, just be careful and accept the people, <laughs> you know, maybe if you want to change it, reach out and ask, don't, don't just change it, you know, because I think that that just hit really hard. And as we're moving forward, hopefully this can be avoided. 
So on that lovely note, let me close out the podcast by saying if you um, want any further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Math Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Eva Sennheiser, talking to myself and Courtney today. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Thanks, Eva.